Father Bears is going to lead us in prayer, if you'll please stand. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you made known to us your word, Jesus Christ, that revelation has come to be written by holy men and women in the Holy Scriptures. We ask you, Lord, as we meditate upon them during these talks, that you fill our minds always with a deeper knowledge and deeper faith in your Son, and this come closer to you. And we ask this praying in those words your Son has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we feel those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Well, welcome everybody to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Uh, I'm not going to introduce our speakers because they've been with us so many times now. Um, please welcome back Brendan McGuire. As Sabatino indicated, right, the, the subject matter for our series this month is going to be excellent preparation for Advent. Right? For us uh, as Christians, Moving into Advent, as the liturgical calendar brings us towards Advent, we have to think about preparation for the coming of Christ. As we think about our own spiritual preparation for the coming of Christ, it's fruitful to reflect on the way in which God's providence prepared the world for the coming of Christ. Right? If, uh, I pray that my philosopher colleague will forgive me if, if I quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was famous for uh, describing divine providence as something that extends itself even to the smallest things. Every detail of human experience is in some way under the influence, under the purview of divine providence. Right? And so it's useful to reflect on the history of the ancient world under that light. Right? Now, now here's why. Right? We all know that the coming of Christ was the fulfillment of a promise. Right? The fulfillment of a, uh, of, of a promise that goes back to Genesis. Right? The promise of a Redeemer was made in the third chapter of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, after the fall of man. Right? This was a promise that was reiterated and expanded upon generation after generation, to Noah, to Shem and Melchizedek, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, to King David. Right? The promise of a Redeemer became ever more clear and ever more real to the chosen people. Right. And yet, when the Redeemer was born, right, the Redeemer was born into a world that was united and held together by Roman statecraft and Greek culture. Right. And that's why it's critical for us to come to understand the historical processes, first of all, by which that world came into existence. Right. And that's what I'm specifically going to focus on uh, in my portions of, of the lectures over the next three weeks, right. the historical dynamics by which the ancient Mediterranean world was united right, under the auspices of, first of all, Greek culture, Greek learning, Greek literature. Right? How is it that the Greek mindset became the common idiom of thought for an entire civilization right, throughout the Mediterranean? And then secondarily, we'll talk about the Romans right, in a couple of weeks and the way in which Roman statecraft came to unite the Mediterranean and create a stable, united world in which the gospel could be spread. Right? So first of all, tonight we're going to focus on the Greeks. Right? And, and the beginnings of Greek civilization actually take us back into prehistory. Before the dawn of written history, we have to go back to the earliest civilization that can in some sense be called Greek. Right? And that is the civilization of the Minoans. Right? 
Minoan civilization was something that, there are echoes of it and mentions of it in Greek literature, right, all across the centuries, Greek literature from much later eras. Minoan civilization itself is very ancient, right? It goes back to the third millennium before Christ. The the earliest uh, evidence of Minoan civilization goes back to about 2,700 years before Christ, right? And we know that the civilization of the Minoans flourished from around 2,700 to around 1,450 or so. Now, uh, there are mentions of Minoan civilization, as I said, scattered throughout Greek literature as the earliest um, form in which civilized life was lived by Greeks in the Aegean world. Right? Minoan civilization flourished uh, mainly on the island of Crete, right? Crete at the, the southern mouth of the Aegean Sea in the Mediterranean. Right? And yet, modern scholarship for centuries regarded the Minoans as a myth. Right? The Minoans were regarded as a figment of, of the imagination of the Greeks, right? A legend that could not be proven. Something like the lost continent of Atlantis or something like that. Until, in the 19th century, archaeologists discovered on Crete the ruins of ancient palaces. And as excavations progressed throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, we found palaces, we found temples, we found streets, we found statuary, evidence of a highly sophisticated civilization on Crete that provides the earliest evidence of sophisticated, civilized life in the Greek world. Right? Uh, the, the capital of the Minoan world was the famous city of Knossos on the island of Crete. Now, the extinction of Minoan civilization around 1450 or so is sudden and mysterious. Right? In, in fact, the, the latest research, of all things, uh, credits the, the possibility maybe of, of a major tsunami in the Mediterranean as the cause of the extinction of Minoan civilization. Right? Latest research indicates maybe this is where the, the legend of Atlantis comes from. Right? But be that as it may, Minoan civilization simply blinks out in the middle of the 15th century BC. Right? It would not be the Minoans who would carry the torch of Greek civilization into the historical era. Right? Another um, semi-prehistoric Uh, civilization that we have to discuss among the Greeks is that of the Mycenaeans. Mycenaean civilization flourished in a a different region of the Greek world. If we were to draw ourselves a little map of the Greek world, if if you'll pardon me for doing so, uh, (laughs) the heart of the Greek world is the Aegean Sea. The, The heart of the Greek world in ancient times is not necessarily mainland Greece, the way it is in modern times. If you envision the Aegean Sea as being bordered on the one side by Asia Minor, right? On the other side by mainland Greece, right, over there. To the north by Thrace, and to the south by the island of Crete, right? If, if this is our Greek world in ancient times, uh, the civilization of the Mycenaeans flourished mainly over here in what we call the Gulf of Corinth, right? Uh, right by the, ith- the Isthmus of Corinth, which, which joins the Peloponnesus uh, to Attica and the main heartland of Greece. The civilization of the Mycenaeans flourished from around 1600 or so to around 1100, right, when it also suffered a mysterious extinction. But we know a lot more about Mycenaean civilization than we do about that of the Minoans. Right? The Mycenaeans are the people depicted in the great epic cycles of Homer and Hesiod, right? the stories that you read in the Odyssey and the Iliad. These depict in some form, the civilization of the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans, like the Minoans, had a highly civilized way of life. 
They had a, a highly sophisticated political structure. They had notions of justice, notions of piety and religion, notions of the family, right? That would be foundational for the Greek world. And yet the, the Mycenaean world was destroyed rather violently around 1100 by an invasion of somewhat more barbarous Greeks that, that are, go down in history as the Dorians, right? Dorian invasion around 1100. It's a very traumatic event uh, for the Mycenaeans. We know the palaces were burned, uh, the municipal halls were destroyed, records were no longer kept, and ultimately the art of writing was lost. Right? In a very dramatic way, the civilization of the Greeks was set back hundreds of years. Right? We see the Greeks plunging around 1100 or so into a dark age. Right? Now just to, to kind of peg ourselves into biblical chronology here, Right around the time that Mycenaean civilization is being destroyed by the Dorian invasion. This is um, maybe when King Saul is a young boy, right? When Samuel, the last and greatest of the judges, is ruling over the people of Israel in the Promised Land. The conquest of the Promised Land not yet complete, right? Just to give ourselves a sense of the parallelism with biblical chronology, right? Yet after the extinction of Mycenaean civilization, we see evidence of this, the remarkable resilience and genius of the Greeks, right? Because for 300 years, there's no evidence of any writing, there's no evidence of any literature, there's no evidence that civilized life was lived by the Greeks. The palaces fell into ruins, the streets were not maintained, population declined, right? And yet beginning around the year 800 or so, we see the first glimmerings of an emergence from the Dark Age right, by the Greeks. We see a rediscovery of the art of writing right, as the Greeks were exposed to the Phoenicians in particular and adopted the alphabet of the Phoenicians, adapted it so that it was more suited to their language, and then began to compose great epic stories about the civilization that they remembered. Right. And this is what's remarkable about Homer and Hesiod. This is what's remarkable about the epic cycles of the 8th century BC, right? that they present to us a vision of Mycenaean life. Right? After 300 years of darkness, 300 years without any writing to transmit stories, 300 years in which oral tradition was the only means by which the memory of a people could be preserved. Right? And yet we get these startlingly accurate depictions of the values of the Mycenaean world in Homer's epics. You know, that there are situations in Homer's epics where he talks about things that he himself does not understand because they're so foreign to him. You know, you, you remember the, the famous passage in the Iliad where he discusses a Greek and a Trojan warrior exchanging armor right, in a ritual gift exchange that made sense in the value system of the Mycenaean age, but makes no sense to Homer himself. Right? And the fact that it makes no sense to Homer himself is indicative of the accuracy with which these traditions are preserved. Right? They're not distorted to fit the values of the later era in which Homer was writing. Right? Beginning in the year 800 or so, historians are fond of using the term, uh, this term, the archaic period of Greek civilization. Right? We call the archaic period... Uh, this period that stretches from around 800 or so to around 500 years before Christ. Right? This is a period in which remarkable developments occur within the Greek world. In the first place, not only do we see a rediscovery of the art of writing, 
and a gradual rebuilding of civilized ways of life, we see the formation of those uniquely Greek political units, namely the city-states. Everybody's familiar with this term, city-states. From, from somewhere in your education, you were exposed to this term, city-state. What is a city-state? It's, it's some kind of a small political unit that's effectively independent. Uh, it's not necessarily just a city. It's some kind of a unit, right, composed of a city and a surrounding hinterland for agricultural use that supports the life of the city, right? And yet the Greek city-states were unique, right? Because although they, they were scattered over a wide region of, of the Mediterranean, a wide region of the Eastern Mediterranean world, and united in language, united in culture, united to a great extent in, in ways of life and in custom, right, they remained radically independent from one another. Right? Now, the Greeks had a word for this, this unique political unit in which the community life was carried out in the Greek world. They called it a polis. Right? A polis was the unit of political life for the Greeks. A polis is a city-state. In fact, the city-state was so um, foundational right, as the scale on which life was lived by the Greeks that Aristotle very famously said, man is a political animal. And what did he mean by that? Man is the kind of animal by nature intended to live in a polis. Right? And so we see the first glimmerings in the Archaic period of a notion uh, that the Greeks had this ability to actively reflect on human life, on justice, on political community, right? on the family, on society, right? on aesthetics, on literature and art. Right? It's in this Archaic period that we see the, the first sprouting of the unique genius of the Greeks. Right? Now... After the year 500, and, and the 500 is kind of an arbitrary date for us, uh, but it's after the year 500, once we enter the 5th century before Christ, that scholars will begin to talk about the Greek golden age. Right? The golden age of the Greeks, the age in which all of their great uh, intellectual and literary and architectural achievements occurred, is the century that stretches from around 500 or so B.C., down to, say, the year 404. Right? 404 is a useful date for us. That's the end of the Peloponnesian War. Right? Now, this great century, this century-long golden age of the Greeks, right, this fifth century before Christ, is characterized by the, the polar opposition and cooperation of two very, very different poles, two very, very different city-states. Right? And you know them. They're Athens and Sparta. Right? Athens and Sparta could not be more different from one another. Right? And yet, without either of the two of them, none of the contributions of the Greeks would have been transmitted to later civilizations. None of the contributions of the Greeks would have been transmitted to the Western world right? if, if it were not for both Athens and Sparta. Right? And I'll explain that. But Athens and Sparta, we have to understand, are, are as being very, very different city-states. You know, the, Athens, by tradition, was democratic, right? Athens became a democracy around, say, 508 B.C., under the leadership of the famous Cleisthenes, right? Athens was radically democratic, much more democratic than any state in the modern age, right? Athens was a city that affirmed the goodness of literature, of the arts, of aesthetics, of architecture, 
Athens encouraged its citizens to reflect on the nature of man, the nature of the world around them. So much of what we know as Greek literature, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, is actually Athenian. Right? If it weren't for the Athenians, really none of the finer achievements of the Greeks would have taken place. Right? Sparta, on the other hand, was the military bulwark of the Greek world. Sparta, a very different place from Athens. You know, the Spartans had no time for these sorts of things. They had no time for the arts, no time for architecture. Really, they had no time for it. And you know why they had no time for it? Because they spent all their time training for war. 100% of the male citizens of Sparta spent 100% of their time training for war. It's why they were the best at it. And it's why Spartan society looks so different on the surface from Athenian society. Right? And yet these two city-states were forced to cooperate at the beginning of the 5th century in the greatest conflict that the Greek world had ever seen to that point, namely the conflict with Persia. Right? And I'm just going to talk about that very, very briefly because I only have a few minutes of time left uh, and then I will cede the floor to my colleague here. Um, but let's, let's think about the conflict with Persia, first of all. We all know the stories. We know the stories of Marathon. We know the story of Thermopylae. We know the, the great stories of the, the sea battles that the Greeks and the Persians fought in the Aegean at the beginning of the 5th century BC. But it's, it's rather difficult to bring home to us the, the nature of the, of the great disparity between the Persian Empire and the Greek city-states. Keep in mind, each Greek city-state was independent, politically self-sufficient, had a population of thousands, maybe tens of thousands at most, while the Persian Empire was a vast state, stretching from the Mediterranean world all the way to the Indus River Valley. The Persian Empire included Asia Minor, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Iran, the Caucasus, right? parts of modern-day Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India. It was a vast state that could call upon almost unlimited resources in its conflict with the Greeks. Right? And yet the fact that the Athenians and Spartans together prevailed against the Persians in this war, which lasted from around 499 down to around 449, right, is something that was foundational for the Greek psyche. In later years, when Athens and Sparta would fight and Sparta would, would defeat Athens in the bitter Peloponnesian War at the end of the 5th century, the Spartans refused to destroy Athens. Why did the Spartans refuse to destroy Athens? In commemoration for what the Athenians had done in the war against Persia. And so this Persian War is going to be absolutely critical at preserving the great cultural, philosophic, and literary achievements of the Greeks, which are absolutely critical for the formation of the Western world as we know it. Now, I'm completely out of time here, uh, so I'm going to stop for the moment and cede the floor to my colleague. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Well, uh, good to see you again, those of you who I've seen before, uh, those of you who I've uh, yet to be introduced to. Uh, hello, my name is Mark Wunsch, and I'll be now approaching some of the same questions uh, by way of a different angle. Okay, I'm going to be looking now from a different perspective. Uh, history deals with particulars, okay, it's said, and philosophy deals with universals. Okay, so we're going to be looking at some of the fundamental uh, approaches 
to reality, ultimately the world of ideas. And we can see, hopefully, how some of what happens in the world ideas is ultimately going to be related to what happens in the world of events, the world of particulars, the world of human affairs. Okay? So that's what we're going to be doing. Okay? And so in some ways it might seem a little ethereal. It, it might be hard to kind of grasp a, a little bit of these things. But remember, uh, philosophy begins with wonder. Okay? Well, what is wonder? Now, wonder is... is what, what you see when you look at a sunset. You know, when a child sees uh, 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 you know, their parents play peekaboo with them for the first time. A wonder that there is something and not nothing. A wonder that things are the way they are. You know, I have two children at home. It's the wonder we experience when my, my little boy puts his hands under the water. And he just, you know, experiences that, okay? There's something that that, that reality is, that things are in in a certain way and other things are different. And and it leaves us wondering and and searching for questions. And I I would propose here that this is the fundamental attitude of the philosopher, okay? So uh, both Plato and Aristotle said that philosophy begins and ultimately ought to end at wonder. So if some of it leaves you a little confused, you're in good shape, okay? Uh, you're in good company, okay? And so I think that's uh, something to, to, to remember as, as we proceed uh, ahead with a kind of a, an examination of, of some themes in philosophy. Now, uh, I'm a little at a loss. In fact, as I was sitting here listening to my colleague, I'm thinking of about six or seven different ways uh, to introduce to you uh, Greek philosophy, okay? And, but but I, I, I'm reminded here that what the Institute of Catholic Culture is about is attempting to show the relationship of history, the relationship of philosophy to your faith, okay? And, and, and again, this is, uh, you know, for you, for me, uh, what is in some sense most important, okay? And so we ought to, to look at everything from, in some ways, the lens of faith. Uh, But yet, when we look at it from the lens of faith, we discover that for centuries, the church has been affirming things like this. Not only that grace builds on nature, but that it takes uh, a firm foundation of natural knowledge for supernatural knowledge to be received. In other words, if if we could find an analogy here. Uh, what I like to say is that if our natural knowledge is not such that it's receptive to the seeds of faith, faith does not have a chance of taking root and of blossoming. Okay? So in some ways, if we're uh, to follow this analogy then, you know, as good soil is to the, the seed, so too is good philosophy or natural knowledge foundational to the seed of revelation being planted in our minds and taking root. Okay, and I would propose, and this is something that's very interesting, I, I, myself as a convert uh, have, have a great familiarity with this, that if certain natural principles are not known and assented to, you have no room for faith. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Okay, and I'm going to take a look at this by way of someone you're familiar with. 
uh, St. Augustine. Okay, so St. Augustine, okay, who was not a Greek, but who was profoundly influenced by Greek thought. So now we're going to fast forward here to 354. Uh, that's not a five, that's a four. Uh, 354 A.D., okay? And uh, these are the years of birth and death of St. Augustine of Hippo. And we find in him someone who had a certain philosophical background that prohibited him from assenting to the truths of faith. Okay, and I think this, I think, will make uh, very clear to you the importance and the instrumental role that good philosophy has in the life of someone who's going to seek uh, things of faith. Okay, so hopefully this will all become uh, very clear here in a moment. Okay. Now first, uh, the most brief background. Okay, what, what am I talking about when I'm talking about faith and reason, theology and philosophy? Okay. Uh, now this is something I've gone over uh, uh, multiple times with, with uh, some of those who have attended other lectures that, that, that uh, I've spoken at. Uh, so I'll be very brief. <clears throat> What we're talking about when I'm talking about philosophy is the pursuit of knowledge by, the way, of, by way of natural reason. In other words, it's everything, every conclusion you can come to by way of reason. And that is by way of our natural reasoning powers reflecting on the world in which we live without relying on, in some ways, the assistance of faith. Okay, something is not strictly philosophical if it includes, you know, implies having to believe. Okay, so philosophy in the strict sense uh, is, is knowledge that's attained by way of reason, whereas theology is knowledge that's attained by way of faith. Okay, just to give a, a little bit of a background. But now let's return to the life of St. Augustine, whose discovery of the faith was only able to occur because of another discovery, his discovery of Greek philosophy and his discovery of the works of the Platonists. Okay? So in the next lecture that I'm going to be uh, giving, I'm going to give some of the background and more of the details, more of the history of uh, the way in which even Platonic thought grew out of a more ancient tradition. Okay? Uh, uh, but, but first of all, I, I want to... Uh, show you again very clearly the instrumental role okay, that our philosophy has in allowing the seed of revelation to be sown. So let me now uh, pick up a little bit, a few details of the life of St. Augustine. Now, St. Augustine was born in North Africa in, in 354. <clears throat> uh, and I'll have to skip some things here, obviously, but I'll give uh, kind of the, some of the seminal moments of his life. Uh, he was raised, of course, uh, by his, his uh, pagan father, Patricius, and his, his Catholic Christian mother, St. Monica. Monica did her, you know, her darndest to, uh, to, to instill the faith in Augustine at an early age. However, without the support of his father, when he went off to school in his early teens, uh, he had the experience... Uh, I don't know if this sounds contemporary at all, uh, of being separated from his faith uh, and, and engaging in uh, some you know, less than savory adventures with his friends, you know, getting involved in petty theft, getting involved in some of these events. Okay? 
uh, compounded with the you know the the onset of uh, you know what happens you know when you're around that age. Uh, this created a, a very combustible situation, and this situation uh, reached its peak when he finally went to university. He went to university when he was 18. His father, fortunately, had converted that year uh, uh, to the faith right before his, de- his death. But at this, at this age, he finally really gave free reign to his passions. He gave free reign uh, to his uh, pursuit of uh, a kind of decadent lifestyle. And he took a mistress. He ended up fathering a, children, a child, a Deodatus, out of wedlock. And, and he took up his career uh, studying rhetoric and instructing uh, other individuals in the art of rhetoric, uh, now in Carthage, the largest city in North Africa. Now, one good thing happened in this period of his life. He read a, a now non-existent work called the Hortensius of Cicero that exhorted him to do this, to seek truth via reason. And this inspired him. It planted a seed to seek after truth by way of reason. Now, what does that mean? Okay, now, there's other alternative options here. Of course, we can pursue wisdom by way of faith. Uh, in, in the ancient world, they pursued wisdom by way of mythology. But philosophy often uh, did a very good job, and we'll get into this a little bit more next time when we go through the history of ancient Greek thought, uh, of, of, of showing the inconsistencies in mythology in showing how uh, the gods being deified and yet living immoral lives is somewhat contradictory. And beyond that, some of the explanation for what was going on in the world that was attributed to the gods was discovered by the philosophers to be more appropriately attributed to natural explanations. So these are different ways in which we can pursue truth. And, and, And really, since the onset of philosophy, since philosophy's inception, in 585 uh, BC, philosophy had really won the day, only being superseded by this supernatural knowledge attained by way of faith. Now, for Augustine, he thought the scriptures were silly. He thought the Bible were stories for children, and he didn't see the depth of the wisdom in it. Okay? And he uh, immediately attached himself to the Manichaean religion. Now, the Manichaeanism, without going into too many details, uh, was kind of like uh, Ward Lucas's uh, uh, concept, uh, or is it Ward Lucas, is that right? Uh, Star Wars. It's, it's like yeah, George Lucas. The, who's Ward Lucas? I have no idea who that is. Uh, and, anyway, good question. Yeah, good question. You, know, you can Google that when you get home. Yeah, and, and, uh, yeah anyway, uh, this is the fruits of, of little sleep, you know, life of a professor. Anyhow, uh, uh, so let's, let's, George Lucas, you know, the, the, there's two vine principles. There's a good principle and an evil principle that are vying for control of man. And he liked this explanation. Why? Because he did good things and he did bad things. And when he did good things, he attributed it to the good principle working on him. And when he did bad things, hey, I'm not at fault. You know, I'm being, you know, the, the evil principle made me do it. You know? and, and this was very, very, constru- very helpful. And it seemed to explain things. However, as time went on, uh, he, he realized, you know, uh, that there's certain contradictions. You know, why are these two good and evil principles existing at all? And why are they in strife? You know, and some of these questions uh, were just hounding him. And eventually, he met a, a, a Manichaean bishop uh, who was uh, incapable of answering some of these questions. And so it left him confused. And as he moved to Rome, uh, because the students at Carthage didn't pay their tuition, you know, uh, you know everyone has to, to, to you know, make a living, uh, he went to Rome and became something of a skeptic and became very skeptical 
about the possibility of knowing truth at all. Uh, I think, uh, making a reference to scripture, Pontius Pilate, you know, what is truth? You know, and, and this is a question. It, it doesn't seem to really exist. The Manichaean solution doesn't seem to work. The Christian solution doesn't seem to work. Uh, and, and so it left him in, in a very skeptical period of his life until he opened the work of the Platonists. Okay? And the Platonists showed him something fascinating and something that, that enabled him ultimately to be open for the seed of revelation to be sown in his life. Now, what did they show? First of all, they showed that truth can be had, that, that truth is attainable. And, and let's just take even some of the most base arguments, that, that even the most skept, the, the, you know, crazy skeptic could not deny. And this might even sound a little bit like Descartes. Uh, but these are some of the arguments that, that the Platonists would use to overthrow the skeptical questions. Uh, let's say, is there something that I can, no one in any way could doubt? Well, Augustine asked, <clears throat> even if I doubt, it presupposes I exist, doesn't it? He said, see fowler ergo sum. Even if I doubt everything that I've ever known, it still implies that there's someone doing the doubting. And so minimally, I exist. Okay, and that we can't doubt. And without going into a multiple other arguments, so even in, in, in other arguments, this sounds a little bit like Descartes, but even you know, the truth, how about this truth, okay? That there's either the world had a beginning or the world didn't have a beginning. And the answer can't be both. It has to be one or the other. And that is absolutely true. Okay, and, and just taking even these simple certitudes leads you to the conclusion that you can come to truth. Now, what is truth? Truth is immutable. Truth is unchanging. Truth does not depend on a cultural context. It is beyond space. It is beyond time. Okay, truth is, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it's extremely important, if you're going to accept the truth of the Catholic faith, that you accept the possibility to come to know truth. Okay? And so he saw then that there's something in truth that led him to, 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 to see, okay, fine, man minimally can come to truth. But something else very interesting follows from this. What follows? Okay. Well, this follows. Now, let's say, given our experience of changeable reality, the reality of uh, things in our daily life. And let's just say, even you know, like the skeptics, that it's, it's mutable, it's changeable. Uh, things change, and I never really can comprehend them in, in, in perfect detail. <clears throat> so my, change, my, my knowledge about the mutable world is rooted in mutable reality. Doesn't it follow, if I have, in my mind... Knowledge about the world, the mutable, changeable world, even knowledge of, you know, that I have of St. Peter's Basilica, okay, having visited Rome, I lived in Rome for five years, I saw this basilica out my window, okay, and it didn't seem to change a lot, okay, but, but it changed a little over time, and certainly as a, a material thing, eventually it could, at least in theory, go out of existence, and 
the same is true with every material thing. If you reflect on our material experience, everything goes out of existence. Okay, that's material. Everything breaks down. Corporeal things are divided, and they come to be, and they can be annihilated. But truth doesn't change. And the truths of mathematics, 2 plus 2 equals 4, is one of those other things that seems to not change, no matter where you are at any time. And this led him to a profound realization. If my changeable knowledge is rooted in changeable reality, where is my unchanging knowledge rooted? Where do you think? If my knowledge of the changeable world is derived from my experience with changeable things, where does my knowledge, the truths that I have that are unchanging, even those truths that we talked about a minute ago, the certitude I have of my own existence. It's, to it's true that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true. Where is it rooted? <clears throat> yeah, let's, how, how, try this on for size. Those are good. The soul. Okay, the soul is where I have this knowledge. But also my knowledge of changeable reality is in my soul too. I mean, my, my soul is, 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 is the principle of, 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 uh, of me, and it informs my body, and it has all these powers that enable me to know changeable reality and unchangeable reality. Well, it would seem that if my knowledge, the knowledge I have of changeable reality is rooted in changeable reality, maybe my unchanging knowledge is rooted in unchanging reality. Try this on for size. The world of being. This is the world of being. Okay? <clears throat> it's the world of things. Okay, reality. Okay, let's, let's try this on for size. This is reality. Okay? There's real things out there. Changeable things in, in the physical world. And I have knowledge of those things. Do I not? Now, when I have knowledge of those things, do they exist in my mind? Not physically. I don't stuff St. Peter's Basilica in my head, right? But nonetheless, it comes to exist in me. This is what knowledge is. Uh, it's me the mental existence of extra mental things in me. Okay, that's one way you can refer to knowledge. In other words, things come to exist in me. But I have different knowledge. I have knowledge that came to me from changeable things. Until I met St. Peter's Basilica, I didn't know it. But when I met it, I, I, became, I, I came to know it. And that knowledge was rooted in things, okay? in reality, reality that's changeable. Well, if I have unchanging ideas, changeless, eternal ideas. Where do they come from? Where would you propose? Innate knowledge. Yeah, it could come as innate. From where? Maybe an unchanging reality. Okay, so in other words, as he discovers 
that our changeable knowledge is rootable, rooted in changeable things, so too must our immutable knowledge be rooted in an immutable being. And this being is God. And God, therefore, there is existence that is unchanging. Because aren't those characteristics ultimately of God? To be eternal, to be immutable, to be changeless. And thus, if I have immutable, changeless, eternal truth, it must have a foundation in reality. Just as my changeable knowledge that I have of changeable things is rooted in changeable things, so too must my unchanging knowledge be rooted in an unchanging eternal being. Thus, he comes by way of the knowledge of truth to knowledge of God. Okay, and thus, he over, in overcoming his skepticism, he overcomes another one of the intellectual maladies of his youth. And that is materialism. Okay, so materialism is holding that all that is in existence is material. This was a doctrine of the Manichaeans. This was the doctrine he held before he read the works of the Platonists. <clears throat> and thus, as he overcame his skepticism, by coming to knowledge of truth, he overcame his materialism by realizing that the true ideas he had existed or have to have an origin for their existence. You know, my, my changeable knowledge comes from changeable reality. Where does my unchanging knowledge come from? The only logical explanation is not from, for him, changeable reality, but from an unchangeable, immutable source. And what is unchanging and immutable? But, but God. And thus, in overcoming his skepticism, he, he overcame his materialism. And thus, all of a sudden, it becomes intelligible to him, for the first time, some of what the church teaches. Okay? That God exists as a supersensible being. His concept of God before this realization was as follows. He felt that the created world was a sponge and God was an infinite sea that permeated that sponge. God was infinite in a material sense. And the world was, if you will, a finite or limited part of God. But all of a sudden now, he realizes that God is above the world. He's not just bigger than the world, but he's better. It's a different way of being. A way of existing in an immutable way, whereas things on this world exist in a mutable way. And what else does this reveal to him? 
Well, if I am capable of knowing truths that are unchanging, okay, there must be something in me that is like the truths that I know. Okay, now think about this. When you come to know a truth, any truth about reality, an unchanging truth, even 2 plus 2 equals 4, are you the origin of that? You don't experience it to be. I mean, you, you experience it as a discovery. And it's something that other people can discover. It's something open for everyone to discover. So it seems that it is unchanging. And I am not the origin of it. The origin is discovered ultimately for him to be God is the source of our knowledge. And the origin of eternal truths. And their foundation is ultimately in him. And truth has being. And its origin is God. Okay? Now, this also says something about us. I am not the origin. My mind changes. It moves from ignorance to knowledge. God is unchanging. The truths are unchanging. But I, my knowledge, is changing. It moves from a lack of knowledge to knowledge. So they are above me. They are immutable, and yet I can come to know them. And so he discovers that God is superior to man as being immutable, the origin of the truths he knows. And this is all by way of philosophy. Okay? It's a different approach than Thomas takes, I acknowledge, but it's rooted in the thought of Plato. Okay? Now, God is the origin of, our tr of, of the truth that I know. And what does that say about my soul? My soul must be like these truths in order for me to know them. In other words, there must be something in me that is like these truths or else I wouldn't know them. And so, there's something in me that is also immaterial like the truths that I know. And thus, he comes to the conclusion that there is a kind of hierarchy in reality. With a being like God, man is a being that is mutable, but yet capable of knowing what is immutable. And then, you know, there are lower things, like animals, which are still insofar as they exist like God, but different from God in that they're mutable and also incapable of knowing God. And thus, he comes up with a vertical hierarchy of being. Okay? And, and thus, he moves from a flat vision of reality where everything that exists is material to a concept of reality that makes room for immaterial being. God, the human soul, as existing in an immaterial way, in a way that things on earth do not. And thus, all of a sudden, okay, he's simply open to the fact that there is an immaterial God that created the world, that is outside of the world, and doesn't simply fill the world like ocean 
fills a sponge, but that is above and beyond the world and made it in its image and likeness. This possibility would not have been open to him had he not read the works of the Platonists that caused him to seek after truth and to show him how the nature of truth, the nature of truth as unchanging, the nature of truth as immutable. And this then led him to see how these truths have to be rooted in, in, in a being. As our mutable knowledge is rooted in mutable reality, this immutable knowledge that I have must be rooted in an immutable being. And this is God. And all of a sudden, he's taken an enormous leap forward to being open to the vision of reality that is revealed by faith. And all of a sudden, the natural knowledge of his mind and its openness to acknowledge the intelligibility of supersensible reality, reality that goes beyond what is material, is something that he is open to. And all of a sudden, he begins seeking spiritual counsel. He begins going to St. Anselm in Milan, where he ends up teaching, and seeking after instruction in the faith. Because he realized it's no longer child's play. But it's something that is rooted in reason. And rooted in reason of some of the best thinkers to have ever lived. Now, next time, okay, hopefully you've been inspired to wonder, okay, a little bit here. Next time, what we'll do, and we're kind of working backwards here, is we'll go back and give more of the foundational ideas of Plato himself, how he derived them from even thinkers that went before him, and then we'll be able to see even more clearly okay, the ideas of Plato, the ideas that then went on to inspire Augustine, and ultimately were incorporated and used by the faith to undergird and support the edifice of revelation, and the edifice, ultimately, of the church and man himself. Okay. That's what's in store. See you next week. All right. All right, well, how do you do a survey course on history and philosophy in a half an hour? Well... If anyone can do it, they can. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, for those that are new, uh, we do a very short Q&A. We'll take about a, a three to five minute break and then uh, come back together if you can stay. Our usual rules apply and that is uh, your question can only be one sentence long. If you have to breathe in the middle of it, it's usually a sign that you've hit a period. And it has to have a question mark on the end. First question, go ahead. You said that... Uh uh, Sparta and Athens uh, were sort of complementary, had appreciation of each other's roles, uh, and especially against the common en enemy of Persia. Why then did they go to war with each other? 
that's going to be a substantial portion of next week's lecture. Uh, but uh, to, to, to <laughs> I mean, to make a long story short, in, in the aftermath of the Persian War, um, Athens and Sparta took very different approaches to, to how to deal with Persia after they had been expelled from Greece. Uh, the Athenians took a very ambitious approach of trying to liberate the Ionian city-states from Persian control. Uh, the Spartans preferred to um, simply leave it alone once the Persians had been driven out of Greece. The Athenians were very ambitious. The, the Athenians even had a plan to invade Egypt at one point. It got a little bit crazy. Um, but the result was Athens continuing the war, taking it to the Persians, taking it to Asia Minor, resulted in Athens building up a, a substantial um, empire in the Aegean, uh, that threatened Sparta. Sparta felt very threatened by, by the predominance of Athens later on in the 5th century. It led to rivalries between Athens and its coalition on the one hand and, and Sparta and its coalition on the other. Uh, and for a variety of, of reasons, that this caused the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War around 431. So. Yes, uh, during the rediscovery of the classics in the Renaissance, what went wrong there, and how do we avoid those pitfalls reading the classics uh, today? The, the question is about Renaissance humanism. Renaissance humanism, of course, one of the foundational movements of the early modern world uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries, in, in which there's an affirmation of, of the validity of classical studies. And the question is, what went wrong? And uh, it's, it's a very good question. And my answer would be, I don't think what went wrong is necessarily something that, that's essentially connected with the rediscovery of the classics. Ultimately, the, the rediscovery of the classics is something that, that brought profound benefits to the Christian world, to the Western world in the early modern period, uh, and to the Catholic Church to this day. Uh, there are profound benefits that are accrued by the study of, or the, or the rediscovery of, of ancient learning in the early modern period. Uh, what goes wrong with the, the modern world is, of course, a, a very, very complex concatenation of circumstances. It involves the destruction of Christian unanimity in Europe in the 16th century, the rise of powerful nation-states, and, um, and the Enlightenment. And, of course, that's, uh, it's, it's an enormous subject. But I'll, I'll hand it over to Mark. If you have any. Is that getting at your question? Um, I, I think there... Uh, there's the, again, I'd point to a certain kind of fruitfulness of that discussion. See, see, some of the danger, of course, as you know, in 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 scholasticism, is you know, of course, scholasticism is what it is because Aristotle and and his thought is predominantly, although there's other strands of of thought, Platonic thought uh, is exposed by way of the Franciscan school, uh, and, and yet I think a certain kind of plurality is a little bit helpful. And why is that? in some ways, even to uh, be able to see the flaws in, in those arguments. I think it's important to be exposed to the Stoic tradition, the Epicurean tradition, because these, these you know, uh, heirs have a tendency to reappear. And so it's important to continue to study these heirs to become familiar with them, because, of course, it's very scholastic to know your opponent's arguments better than they know their arguments, okay? And, and in so doing, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's very important to be well, as well-read as possible and to really come to know these Enlightenment thinkers, come to know uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the pernicious thought 
of Sextus Empiricus as a, as, you know, a skeptic whose works were rediscovered in the Renaissance, uh, it's important to know his thought because then you know what Michel de Montaigne did and, you know, and, and where he went wrong, where Augustine already responded to those arguments. Uh, but, but simply knowing them, I think, is extremely important because there's nothing like someone, and I had an experience like this when I was rooming with a roommate from Trinidad and Tobago in, in uh, uh, in Mexico, and this is a, a, a very well traveled. <laughs> anyway, a very odd experience. Anyhow, uh, Eddie, Eddie was quoting Nietzsche to me, you know, and and and, and I and I, I reiterated, and, and I I I, was, I just quoted Nietzsche back to him, you know, and, and and he realized that I knew Nietzsche better than he did, you know, and, and that that really took the wind out of his sails, you know, and so you know, and and then uh, you know, it really led to a fruitful discourse. So in summary. I think the rediscovery of the classical learning is important because those ideas are, are you can't you know, put them under a bushel basket and hide them. They'll come out, and the more they're exposed, then hopefully you can expose their errors and, and, and the fallacious reasoning that's involved, and hopefully then people will turn from them to perennial philosophy, the philosophy of individuals whose thought has shown perennial value like Plato and Aristotle. As it would be, I actually just started to read the Confessions of St. Augustine, but I've only gotten to like book four. <laughs> okay. So what is the relationship between Arist um, Augustine and Plato? Like what is his importance in history? Uh, the importance is okay, the importance is at a certain stage in his life. Okay, this is the stage, and I, I, I did allude to this uh, during the talk, uh, but, but I can elaborate now. Uh, there's a stage in his life where a friend of his procured works of the Platonists. Okay, and this was after he'd become a skeptic. And it's in reading these works, part of them were the Aeneids of Plotinus, uh, which was a Neoplatonic, uh, uh, Neoplatonic philosopher who philosophized a couple centuries after uh, Christ. And, and in reading these works, okay, and this was uh, at this time in his life when, when he was teaching in, uh, at Milan, in Rome, and then Milan. In reading this, the, the ideas of Plato, at that moment, he developed an affinity for Plato and, and came to know Plato extraordinarily well. And then, you know, a few years later, when, when he finally converts, you know, at the age of 33, uh, he develops a theology that's consistent and compatible and uses with, with, with Platonic philosophy in most respects. Uh, in, in some respects, no. But in many respects, yes, and that is in some ways the vessel he uses intellectually to found his, his theological doctrine. But, but it's at that, that period of his life. Uh, and and it's, it's a friend who procured the works of some of the Neoplatonists uh, that, that led him to come to know Platonic thought well and then to, to kind of uh, uh, dedicate himself to the study of, of Platonic thought. Uh, and this, this kind of occurred immediately before his conversion. I'd just like to ask about um, if you read stuff, like even in Judaism, different like ancient religions come into like Zoroastrianism and stuff like that. Well, then you've got the Greeks with all their gods and, and stuff. I'm just wondering, it seems like since theology and philosophy kind of walk hand in hand, was there something specific going on in terms of like the religiosity of the gods and all that kind of stuff that opened up the Roman and Greek world? Um, differently at that time to actually to accept the teaching of the Savior and, and different things like that from a theological perspective as well as philosophical. Yeah, you know, you know what I would say here is um, again philosophy kind of begins, uh, and, and I think when we go into the more of the history next time, I think this this will help with this. Uh, what I'm going to say now, but philosophy kind of begins when mythology ends. 
in some ways. Because mythology provides explanation for phenomena we experience. It's because the gods are doing this and that that we experience these things happening in our experience. And philosophy begins by finding other reasons for what is going on. So in some ways, uh, and, and philosophy ultimately, okay, both Plato and Aristotle, were reason to uh, a, a kind of uh, ontological principle, okay, or a, a single cause, okay, for Aristotle the unmoved mover, for Plato a kind of demiurge, uh, and maybe we'll talk about this, that, that organizes, makes the world out of this inchoate mess, this, this chaotic mess. And, and they, the philosopher's notions, uh, they, they develop notions of, of, of one God of some kind. It's, it's not exactly the God of Christianity, uh, but it's, and it's not exactly a creator God, okay? But, but, but there is, is a sense in which there is one singular explanation for what is, as opposed to these, the, the plurality of, of causes that, that the, gods, uh, the gods are. And so I think partly it's in the rejection mythology and the openness to philosophy that we become open to the one God. Okay, and, and I think that is actually what disposes in a particular way the Greek, uh, the Greek mindset to be open to this, this whole notion of, of, of a one God. Could you please say specifically how Cicero affected uh, Augustine's, just very quickly? He read a work of Cicero called the Hortensius. So the Hortensius of Cicero, which was a work that inspired him to seek truth via reason. So he, there's, there's obviously a whole range of literature of Cicero that St. That Augustine was very familiar with. But of course, in his study of rhetoric, and, and, and he still has a classical education, he is well-versed in pagan literature. Uh, but it's specifically this work of Cicero that inspires him to seek truth via reason. Now, he discovers, finally, in his, that, that reason isn't all there is, and reason only takes you so far, and that faith takes you well beyond where reason can take you. But, but it was simply the reading of this work by Cicero that inspired him to seek truth via reason. Okay, we'll do one. I, I, it's a weak moment, really. All right, the last question. So I wonder whether they knew anything about the Hebrews and, what, and their notions. So the, the question is whether the Greeks knew anything about the Hebrews. Oh, man, it's, it's a good question. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's funny. The, the, the amazing thing about the Greek world prior to, um, well, really prior to the Persian War, is its isolation. Uh, this is something that, that scholars have gone back and forth about. But particularly during the Dark Age and the Archaic Period, we can envision the Greek world developing in isolation. Right? During the Archaic Period, you have the polis kind of emerging from, from the ruins of the Dark Age and the beginnings of exposure to the world around them, principally through the Phoenicians. But uh, there's certainly no, no evidence of direct contact with the Hebrews at all in, in this period. Now, the interesting thing, where it gets really interesting, is in the Hellenistic Period, Right, that is to say, after the conquest of Alexander the Great, right, when you have Greek thought spread throughout the Eastern Mediterranean world, when Greek thought becomes the common idiom of the Eastern Mediterranean, 
uh, that's when you have direct contact between the Jews and the Greeks, and, and certainly enormous pressure within Jewish society to conform to Greek customs, uh, to, to give their children Greek names, to, to be educated like the Greeks, to speak Greek. Uh, the, the Jews um, you know, throughout the Eastern Mediterranean world spoke Greek after the Hellenistic period. Educated Jews spoke Greek, for sure. And uh, so that's where you have direct contact. But but in in the classical period, in the golden age, there there's not really any evidence of direct contact. If that makes sense. So. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I, I'm glad we ended with that with that comment or that question because because that's kind of the the direction we're heading. Okay, to see how um, the ancient world fed into. Um, and came into contact with Judaism and ultimately was uh, a bed in which God could send his only begotten son to us. And if it wasn't for the history that we're learning here and the philosophy that we're learning, Christianity would not have spread like it did, like a wildfire across the known world, across the Mediterranean world. And so this is the direction we're taking it in this series and also in our programs coming up. Just uh, put on your seatbelts and don't go anywhere. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Uh, Make sure you have a few more snacks in the back. God bless you.